It is important and refreshing to receive a journal like Sources. I rely on Sources for a deeply informed and well-curated collection of essays responding to current events and issues in contemporary Jewish life. Hi, I'm Claire Sufrin, editor of Sources, a journal of Jewish ideas. We get in-depth information from noted scholars, often in dialogue with one another, which is not to say always in agreement. In the newly released spring issue, scholars examine the theme of Jewish life tomorrow, reimagining key Jewish concepts for the present and future. Read, reflect, and subscribe to the award-winning journal at sourcesjournal.org. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Identity Crisis, a show about news and ideas from the Shalom Hartman Institute. I'm Yudha Kurser, president of Shalom Hartman Institute North America, and we're recording on Friday, September 10th. Tomorrow, of course, is 9-11 and the 20th anniversary of 9-11. All of us who work in some capacity in the social sector or in political life or in relationship to a religious community or the some of us who work at the intersection of all three of those had our careers dramatically altered by 9-11. For some of us, if we were old enough in ways that we can identify and name, we know how the agenda changed, we know how our responsibilities changed, we know how our question of allies changed. And for others, and I've spoken to some younger colleagues this week, they know it probably did change their career trajectory, but they may not have been old enough to recognize the ways that it did. I'm talking today with a friend and colleague of mine who is one of the people who I know and has spoken very extensively about the ways his career and life changed significantly after 9-11. My friend Wajahat Ali is a writer, public speaker. He's got a book coming out in January called Go Back to Where You Came From and other helpful recommendations on how to become American, due out from Norton in January, and has written this week a piece in New York Magazine called How 9-11 Destroyed the Muslim Model Minority Myth, and is someone who I remember the conversation, Waj, that we had where you explained to me how and why your life changed after 9-11. So I'm grateful to have this conversation with you. We'll get into a little bit about why this matters in the context of a show primarily targeted towards the Jewish community. Thanks for making time. And watch, start with that. Locate us back on September 11th, 2001. Where were you? Where were you in life? And 9-11 was dramatic for all of us, of course. But what was so dramatic that wound up literally changing the trajectory of what you were going to do with your life? Yeah, so belated Shana Tova and Happy New Year to all listening. Thank you for inviting me, Yehuda. On September 10th, 20 years ago, I was a 20-year-old undeclared senior at UC Berkeley trying to figure out what to do with the rest of my life. And the night before, along with a lot of other Muslim dorks, was in my apartment drinking chai, playing NBA 2K Dreamcast. I stayed up too late, probably didn't do work. So in the morning, September 11th, when my roommate, Essen, knocked on the door early, again, this is West Coast. I'm like, why why the hell are you knocking on the door? What's Go away. And he goes, you got to wake up. I'm like, just go away. Then he knocks again. And he goes, you really need to get up. So we're both standing there, son of Pakistani immigrants in our pajamas, staring at the TV, seeing one of the towers on fire. And I think most of us who are old enough, when we saw that, we thought, well, I think maybe the pilot had a heart attack. Maybe he was trying to land at LaGuardia. Something went wrong. It wasn't until that second plane hit the second tower. That's when I think most of us around the world immediately thought, oh, my God, this is coordinated. And that's when... I did the minority prayer, and it's, it's a prayer that people of color do and minorities do, which is, please don't let it be a Muslim. Please let it be a white person. It's not because we hate white people, we want anything bad to happen to white people. It's we realize that when one of our members of our community does something, we are all collectively blamed. And you saw on the scroll, Osama bin Laden, Al-Qaeda, 
And I remember very vividly, I closed my eyes and I saw the next 10 years. I just saw it. And I saw war. I saw bloodlust. I saw anger. I saw an immense type of scrutiny on Islam and Muslims. Just being a student of history and maybe a student at UC Berkeley in particular, I saw it. And I was also a member of the Muslim Student Association at the time. And specifically, they had voted me and four other people as leaders of the Muslim Student Association, right? Like the board. And some dark humor is needed. I always joke, you know, if Muslims knew about 9-11, which we didn't, but if you heard the conspiracy theory, I would have joined the Indian Student Association instead of the Muslim Student Association. I would have learned how to do Bhangra. I would have learned good spelling, dated some cute girls. But FML, I joined the Muslim Student Association because I'm sure many Jews listening can empathize when you go to college. You're like, ah, there are others. There are others like me. I don't have to explain myself all the time. I'm no longer the token. And so immediately the repercussions of 9-11, even though the two towers fell in New York, the mushroom cloud from that blast went worldwide and affected us. And I'll give you a really quick example of how that happened. My roommate, Essen, put my email as a media outreach because I was a board member. So who gets all the hate mails? I do. So immediately me, the son of Pakistani Muslim immigrants, is being blamed for 9-11. Immediately our phone starts buzzing because Muslim girls in California are like, should I go to school today? I heard a story about someone getting hazed, someone got assaulted, oh my God. The chancellor of UC Berkeley and the president invite us for a special meeting. What can we do to help? Do you guys need anything from us? Are you guys going to do something or protest? You know, should we be concerned about something? And so immediately from that moment forward, I became, and others like me became, this accidental activist, a cultural ambassador of 1.7 billion people, no training, no mentorship. Fareed Zakaria wasn't on TV at that time. There was no Keith Ellison or Ilhan Omar. You have to realize this is 2001. And the country was so crazy, Yehuda, people forget that the Dixie Chicks, who at that time were the number one pop country music stars, Natalie Maines, the lead singer, like two years later, said, this is all that she said, I'm embarrassed that President Bush is from Texas, y'all. As a result of that one benign comment, this country went so mad, they took tractors over Dixie Chick CDs and made a bonfire of it. And so in that climate of chaos, I call it a baptism by fire, because in that crisis, there was a fork in the road, a pre-9-11 and a post-9-11. And my generation, our generation, for us, it's so vivid that it kind of thrust me into the rest of my career, if that makes sense. It does, yeah. And from that moment on, it was go time. I'm taken by the twin points of contact that you described. One is external, so media and the university president and others kind of looking to you to either protest against Islam, as you've talked about publicly, about being the good Muslim as opposed to other Muslims to represent 1.7 billion Muslims. But you also mentioned members of your own community looking to you for advice as a 20-year-old college student in Berkeley. So I guess the foregoing question is, why was it your generation of 20-some-odds who were put in the spotlights? What was going on economically and socially within the communities that you were coming from that put you into that position? And I guess I'd just be curious for you to toggle between those positions, because it means that you're both an ambassador outward, but you're also exhibiting some amounts of public leadership inward. And I guess I'm really curious about that second piece. Uh, what did it mean to lead inside the American Muslim community to see its status in America decline and become criticized in the wake of the attack? Yeah, that was exactly it. You have to realize, and I think Jews listening know this very well, if they know anything about Jewish history, is that the country can turn on you on a dime. It doesn't matter how good you are. It doesn't matter how loyal you are. It doesn't matter if you take part in the military. It doesn't matter if you're economically successful. It doesn't matter if you think you've achieved whiteness, achieved mainstream success. The country can turn on you on a dime. 
And I think in that particular moment for many Muslim Americans, not all, obviously it's the most diverse religious communities in America, there was a realization that, oh, we've made it. We're the good immigrants. We're the model minorities. We bought into it, right? South Asians and Arabs in particular, not all of them. Of course, there was class differentiation and African-Americans who said, ah, this country's never accepted us. But for the rest of us, right, we were these kids who were the sons and daughters of Americans who became Americans, new Americans, who were immigrants. And we were given, if you will, this checklist of success. Be good, go to a good school, get a good degree, get a good wife, have good kids, go get a selfie in front of Hajj and repeat the process. And I remember I was reading a study at that time that said the majority of Muslim Americans, their professions or occupations around that time, the big bulk of it was business. There were also engineers, doctors, and also in the transportation service. So when it comes to public leadership, what's missing? Elected officials. What's missing? Teachers. What's missing? Media, journalists, stand-up comedians. Where's the footprint in culture? Where's the footprint in politics? Where's the footprint in translating that entrepreneurship into a type of leverage where you are seen as a co-protagonist of America. It wasn't there. There were people doing it, but it was largely, despite us being in this country for 400 years, we were still very new in that arena. So now the onus and the pressure fell upon the rest of us who did not claim the mantle, but at the same time, we're at UC Berkeley, which is a bastion and hub of activism, which has a reputation. We're student leaders. And now we have to navigate with the external, with the media, with the community, with the mosque, and with students. And you're right, I was 20 years old. Where's the playbook? There is no playbook. And so simultaneously, you don't want to be an apologist. But at the same time, there are people who are terrified. And you're just trying to survive and keep your head above the water. And what I liken it to as an analogy is we were, in addition to being a Muslim culture ambassador, in addition to becoming a Muslim Wikipedia entry, Whereas a 20-year-old, we had to be an expert on the drop of the dime on Islam, Quran, Sharia, Prophet Muhammad, Hamas, Hamas, I joke, everything. And knowing full well that if you mess up, not only will Wajahat Ali be targeted, it's not Wajahat Ali. It's what Wajahat Ali represents, which is this thing called Islam. Because now it was Islam versus the West, a civilizational conflict, right? And internally, you are now asked to represent this thing called Islam, represent this thing called Muslims, represent Muslim Americans and yourself and not F up. As we're getting hazed from the media, from national security, and I remember the internal policing within the community was the following, and still exists. To this day, I still get it. Don't be too angry. Don't be too passionate. What will the people say? The people is code word for white. Ethnic is the code word for the rest of us. So you police your emotions, you police your righteous rage, and you modulate it based off this immense, very real fear that what you do and what you say is not limited to you, Yehuda. It now becomes representative of this thing called Muslims. And if God forbid you F up and say something nutty, all Muslims are indicted by a nameless judge, jury, and executioner that will always hold your patriotism as suspect. There's something ironic, though, about that sequence, because as you've described and others have written, American Muslims, especially South Asian American Muslims, pre-9-11 had voted for George W. Bush. The majority had voted for George W. Bush. And as you've written about and others have written about, we're kind of on a journey towards whiteness, of a social mobility in America. 
And so that journey stays post 9-11, but as opposed to being a kind of happy journey, modulate and moderate who we are in order to be accepted, it's the same journey. How do we figure out how to be accepted, but it's with this specter or with this climate of fear, but the same thing is kind of taking place. But you've also described that it's not just that American Muslims had to start watching what they said in public, not be too angry. You can't be happy because that looks like you're celebrating 9-11 and you can't be angry. You have to be moderate. Whatever moderate means. But as you've also written, there's also this emergence of a kind of proud Muslim cultural identity. So like those things to me feel like a little bit intention because Rami doesn't exist, right, in pre-9-11 America. No. And he's not the example of, quote unquote, the moderate, the good Muslim. These are super complicated cultural characters. So how did that evolve? How did it move from immediately after 9-11 being about, oh, my God, we have to play the role of good white moderates to, you know what, we just have to allow ourselves to be who we're going to be and try to win people over with the thickness or the substance of our identity. And that's the ongoing tension and struggle and push and pull of America and also those communities, including Muslims and Jews in America, who are trying to expand the tent of what it means to be an authentic Muslim, an authentic Jew, right? And those conversations were happening in America. And I'll go back to that election. I think it's a very good pivot point. Before that election, Muslims in America were having the debate is voting halal? And literally the rest of us were banging our head against the wall that, oh my God, this is where our community is in 1998, is voting halal. When some Muslims, specifically South Asian and Arab Americans, especially that immigrant community, decided to vote as a block, FML, they voted for George W. Bush. That was my first election. And I was like, for the love of God, please do not vote for Bush. There were others. And, you know, African-Americans who make up about 25% Muslim communities, they went with the Democratic ticket. They're like, you all are on your own. You guys don't realize what you're doing. The realization at that time was the following. Republicans have courted us. George W. Bush, through Grover Norquist, who is a tax reformer, a conservative, Grover said, you have some low-hanging fruit here. They'll vote for us. There are people who are socially conservative. There are many who are entrepreneurs. They like low taxes. We talk about God, religious values, reach out to them. Democrats have abandoned them. Secret evidence laws that were being used specifically against Arab Americans. George Bush talked about that, tried to repeal it. And, you know, if you've never been invited to the party, and you've never been invited to the prom, the person who actually flirts with you, you go like, hey, I'll go with you. So now you had Muslims who literally 95% of the vote, who then in Florida, of the Muslim vote went for Bush, which is why Grover Norquist later crowed the Muslim vote gave Bush the White House, the irony. And then the Bush administration turns on that very same community. And the shattering you have to realize for many Americans, for many Muslims, not all of them, who thought, you know, they didn't necessarily vocalize this language, but they chased whiteness. Suburban house, middle-class America, we're not black, we're not brown, meaning Latinos, we did everything right, and we're the good minorities. And then overnight, shattered. I've been in this country 30, 40 years, an uncle told me, and they turn on me overnight. I've been in this country, I've done everything right, I turn on the TV, they see me as a terrorist. And then also what happened is with the conservative movement and the Republican Party, since they became so virulently anti-Muslim, Many people kind of out of default shifted towards the Democratic Party. But for my generation, there was that fork in the road where we blew up that checklist of safety. And you saw a lot of lawyers say, I don't want to be a lawyer. I want to be a stand-up comedian. I don't want to be a doctor. I want to go into journalism. You know what? I want to go into politics. And it was a massive shift. It was almost like an unconscious collective realization for my community that we're going to have to now enter the cultural arena and be co-protagonist of America. So that's when you saw... All these comedians go axis of evil. Allah made me funny. And without them, you would have no Rami. Without them, you would have no Hasan Minhaj. Without Keith Ellison, you wouldn't have Ilan Omar. Even me, 
I was a 20-year-old student trying to figure out my major, and Ishmael Reed, who's my short story writer, uh, African-American playwright and poet, MacArthur Genius winner, he said, listen, as a black man, I can tell you your people are going to get hazed in this country. We've fought back through art and culture. I've never read an American story about Muslims. What are you, Muslim Pakistani? Why don't you write a traditional play? I think dialogue and characters are your strengths. Put Muslims in the center. And that became the foundation of the play, Domestic Crusaders, that I wrote about a family of Pakistani Muslim Americans responding to the post-9-11 climate. I think about this sometimes, the sliding door moments, and you've alluded to this. If there was no 9-11, would I be talking to you? Would I be a writer? Would there be a Rami? Would there be a Keith Ellison? Would there be a progressive consciousness of young hijabi Muslim women who are standing hand in hand with LGBTQ allies? Let me tell you straight up, and for Jews who are listening, that ish would never have happened in 2008, 2009. I'm telling you, I'm keeping it real. If you said, we, the Muslims, are going to hang out with the gays, people would say, astaghfirullah, la wa la what are you talking about? And that's a remarkable shift. Even Jews, right? Let's be honest. There's immense tensions, as we know. But even finding those spaces in the last 10 years with Jews, there's a realization that this post-9-11 climate and the rise of xenophobia has required us to modulate not only our identity, but also our place in America and those strategies of how we can expand the American tent and the tent of what it means to be a Muslim American. Right. Similar to a kind of controversial piece that came out last year from Zaid Jelani in Tablet magazine, which is a Jewish publication, where he said, we Muslims didn't just survive, we thrived. And it was a reflection on the Trump era and the ways in which Trump essentially is the fulfillment of the post 9-11 vitriol against American Muslims that gets turned into American policy vis-a-vis the Muslim ban and other expressions. And Jelani's argument is that threatened to destroy our communities, but it actually mobilized American Muslim political involvement and political participation better than before. As long as you don't make that argument causal in the sense of like, oh, now it means all of this was good. There is something to that claim of, okay, this happened to us. And now look at the way that our communities pivoted towards one another, towards a different type of cultural and political arrival in this country. Of course, you wish it wouldn't have happened, but you are describing some realities of American Muslim life that have only been made possible because of this kind of urgency that was created by these moments. Well, yes and no. I understand what Zaid was saying, but the reason why some nuance there is important is because it came at such a cost, a continued cost, a continued trauma. And even though now, yes, there's Rami and yes, there's Ilhan and Rashida and Keith Ellison. And yes, there's, you know, Amna Nawaz and Fried Zakaria and Ayman on TV. And yes, there's me. And yes, with the realization of Trump, it's one of those dark humors that I think Jews will understand is like, see, we weren't lying about Islamophobia. And a lot of our allies, literally, they told me, you know what, we're taking this seriously now. For the last 16 years, we thought, oh, you Muslims, oh, you black folks. Oh, you're just whining. We live in a post-racial America. We voted for Obama. Stop whining. Stop complaining. Pull yourself up from bootstraps. And the realization, the in- inevitable realization of Trump and Trumpism made so many allies who ignored us say, huh, we get it. And not only that, it realized, huh, we can't ignore the threat of Islamophobia because it's directly connected to anti-Semitism, which is directly connected to anti-Black racism, which is directly connected to misogyny. And it seems like they're coming after all of us. The problem, though, is as we are, quote unquote, thriving in a way that we didn't before, as emerging as co-protagonists of the American narrative, right? The mainstreaming of Islamophobia is just, there's no dog whistles, Yehuda. Literally, there is an entire conservative movement now where you are not penalized in any way, shape, or form 
for the most noxious, toxic conspiracy theories, Islamophobia, anti-Muslim hatred. You're just not. So it's become polarized in the sense that, yes, we've won over, I guess, a slight majority, if you're saying that Democratic voters are the slight majority, where at least there's a cushion and at least there's maybe some alliances. But within that conservative movement, I'm going to just give you one example. In addition to just Trump, you could now openly say the most vile things about Ilhan Omar. I don't care if you agree with her, disagree with her. Go ahead and disagree with her. But because of her blackness, her Muslim hijab, and the fact that she's a refugee, she becomes like this, I call the trifecta boogie woman, to the point where Judge Jeanine Pirro can go on Fox News and somehow equate her hijab with Sharia taking over. That was something that didn't exist in 2001. And to the point where the irony of ironies, George W. Bush, after 9-11, went to a mosque and told the world, Islam is not the enemy. Muslims are our neighbors. I'm embarrassed or I feel terrible if Muslim women feel like they can't be safe in this country. Can you imagine, Yehuda, a GOP representative in 2021 going to a mosque saying that? And the irony and the sadness is that George W. Bush ran as the Republican presidential candidate in 2024. He would be mocked and ridiculed as an immigrant lover and a Muslim lover. And that's the tension. And in practice, as a centrist, regardless of what his policies actually were. So there's one kind of wrench in all of this, watch, which I want to talk about. And it's not about you. Like, we know each other. This is public information. We know each other because you came to the Hartman Institute. You made pretty superhuman efforts to meet the Jewish community and not just meet the Jewish community in conversation around Israel. You've traveled to Israel and to Palestine multiple times. You led a documentary process at the Atlantic on encountering settlers. And I know that that encounter has come to you at significant personal and professional cost. But one of the things that I struggle with in this story is that the emergence of a activist culture of Muslim identity in America increasingly feels at odds with there are pockets of where it meets up with the Jewish community in multi-faith, multi-ethnic coalitions, if it's those sectors of the Jewish community that also position themselves as either hypercritical of Israel or in opposition to Israel. But the majority of the Jewish community, which is basically Zionist or supportive of the state of Israel, does not know what to do with or to make of this new activist Muslim identity that has retained a criticism of Israel as almost a key feature of its identity. So first of all, I would love for you to Tell me I'm wrong about that. But that's what feels to me very scary about this, because from the Jewish community's perspective, great if part of what happens around 9-11 is the emergence of a narrative of Israel and America as these great demons in the West and the attack and the criticism of them. I would love to build greater connections between Jews and Muslims. It's a big part of my life. But what happens when the new Muslim identity is still foregrounding or insisting on a certain type of criticism of Israel as a core component of that identity? So two things. I think first and foremost, no matter what Muslims have done, and this is me having lived as a Muslim, I think that Jewish community has always been afraid of Muslims. Anytime a Muslim or an Arab or a pro-Palestinian voice has emerged in any capacity, I can tell you from my experience, we were crushed, right? Like to the point where when I was at UC Berkeley student, there was something called Campus Watch. And these are like suburban good kids who were just, you know, the second Tafada was happening, we took part in protests. And for us, the fear was Jewish, quote unquote, power or influence, which was so vastly like asymmetrical to quote unquote Muslim power. If we were to simply exert our pro-Palestinian criticisms, which weren't necessarily, I don't think they were anti-Semitic, but some people would disagree, but like just be pro-Palestinian, that would be like a flaming tire around our neck that would destroy our careers. And you still see that happening now, right? That fear. That fear has kind of been lessened in extent because I think you and I are shocked that Israel has become a partisan issue. 20 years ago, if you said Israel would be a partisan issue where there would be young Jews 
progressives openly criticizing Israel, I'd be like, get the F out. That would never happen, right? They would never risk their career equity. So from our perspective, I'm just giving perspective for those who might not agree with me. From our perspective, it's that we'll never be moderate enough. And I'll give you a very quick example. And I'm going to answer your question also. Keith Ellison, a couple of years ago, and I talked to Jonathan about this from the ADL. Keith Ellison against BDS. Keith Ellison goes to Israel. Keith Ellison calls out anti-Semitism. But then they have this audio clip of how he's talking to Muslim students about like, well, you know, this is how Jews do it. And you got to do how the Jews do it. You know, it's like politics. And then Steve Emerson, who now is increasingly seen as a toxic person, right? But part of what we call the Islamophobia industry, took that information and said, look, he's anti-Semitic and the ADL hit him. For the rest of us, we're like, oh my God, if Keith Ellison isn't even kosher for them, none of us will be kosher for them, right? So what does it matter trying to always moderate for the Jewish community that by virtue of our existence, anytime we're pro-Palestinian, sees us as a threat? Nothing is good enough. Each time we advance in media or politics, there's always a Jewish footprint ready to quash us if we're pro-Palestinian. I'm just giving you the perspective, Yehuda, for those who are listening, right? And now there's a situation where there's diverse Muslim communities. There are Muslim pockets who do not like the Muslim activists. There are Muslim pockets who think that the progressive Muslim activists that are aligning with the Democratic Party are abandoning religiosity, abandoning traditional Islam, are abandoning some conservative values. I'm sure the Jews listening right now would understand this on gay marriage, on abortion, for example. There are people who are deeply skeptical of establishment, period, who are very enamored in a strange way by Joe Rogan <laughs> and Infowars, can you believe it or not, Jordan Peterson. But when it comes to Israel, I think for many American Muslims, right, to be very blunt and honest about this, there will always be a lingering desire to be pro-Palestinian. The problem, and I just was at Duke yesterday, and I was talking to both Muslim and Jewish students, is that as this issue becomes more and more nuanced, the line between is criticism of Zionism anti-Semitism? Is criticism of Israel anti-Semitism? What works, what does work? And now you got Jews saying to me, you know, like I remember when Ilhan said those tweets about all about the Benjamins, I wrote an article for the Washington Post. I said, you know, I'm glad she apologized. I'm glad Jews are working with her. Sometimes these are anti-Semitic tropes that people don't even recognize. I remember I was in a room in New York. What are these meetings that you and I always have to take? And there was a Jew who said, she didn't say anything anti-Semitic. I support her. So I'm like, isn't this an interesting plot twist? <laughs> you know, like, look at that. And he goes, I'm a proud Jew and I'm all for it. I'm sick and tired of APAC, X, Y, and Z, right? But the problem here is the following, and I know in the interest of time, you know, we could talk a whole episode about this, is a space has to be created, and I ask Jews for this space, where you don't automatically turn on a Muslim if they're critical of Zionism or Israel and squash them as anti-Semitic. There's a space there. And for Muslims, and you know this, and I know this because you've alluded to it, in some of these circles, this is the key part, some of these circles, where Palestine like Israel and your communities, becomes the rallying cry where you have to perform on social media, where you have to perform in front of the funders, right? Let's be honest about it. There is very little space given where you can talk to someone who self-identifies as a Zionist. And I am trying to carve a space or see if a space can be carved where you can be progressive on your politics, where you can live in alliance with multicultural communities, not agree with everything, but at least most values, retain your truth about Palestine and Israel, but we are living in the United States of America where your community and my community, in my opinion, Yehuda, is facing Thanos. And Thanos is white supremacy that is coming after all of us. And so that tension is real. 
that concern is real. And I could tell you within Muslim Americans, there are a lot of leaders and funders and activists who want to reach out and have flexibility. But within the community, the pressure comes in that silences it. Does that make sense? And I know Jews listening know this. It does. It does. Let me ask you one last question. We'll come back to where we started with 9-11. So there was a piece that Jonathan Greenblatt of the ADL, who you referred to earlier, wrote on CNN.com last week in advance of the high holidays, apologizing on behalf of the ADL for the decision that the ADL had undertaken under its previous leadership to oppose the Cordoba House project, uh, Park 51, a mosque that was meant to be built in the area around Ground Zero, designed as an interfaith center kind of exactly what you want in the world. For all the reasons we've alluded to, it was opposed politically, and then some voices in the Jewish community, most prominently in the ADL under its former leadership, opposed it, and Greenblatt wrote a public apology. I thought it was great. It was interesting to see there were different reactions. The current leadership of Cordoba House welcomed the apology, so this is exactly what we need. Daisy Khan, who had been one of the leaders of the project, was really upset about the apology, felt like too little too late, and why didn't you speak to us directly? Why is this taking place in the press? I guess I'm curious both for your two cents on that, and like, what else do you want to see? I read it, I was like, this is great. It was good to see, of course, it's not the whole work of reconciliation after moments like this. What else do we need to do, whether it's in the Muslim community towards the Jewish community and vice versa? So two things. I appreciated the article. I think it's never too late to make amends. I shared it. I think it's important. I think for most people, they need to hear that. You have to also realize there's pain, immense pain, especially with the ADL under Abraham Foxman's leadership. I mean, we're talking about a lot of progressives, not anti-Semites, people who really are good folks who I would have suspected them to praise that article. They were like, too late, performative, and ADL still hasn't apologized for spying on us for bad-mouthing us, for slandering us, all the pain that we had to go through after 9-11. So that pain and those wounds are very real. And Jonathan kind of has a masochistic job of trying to inherit that baggage, but also trying to cleave from it and move forward while also then not appearing too weak in front of his Jewish allies and funders who say you can't succumb to these Muslim forces. You know, it's a tricky world. I take the wins where I can. I think it's a good start. And from the Muslim perspective, we have to realize that that was such a painful memory because that was done in coordinates with Jewish allies based on the Jewish centers. And it was a coordinated effort done by the conservative movement right before the 2010 elections that helped mainstream those talking points that still attack Muslims to this day. Obama is a Muslim. Sharia is a threat to America. We don't expand mosques. And it kind of was the natural escalation of 9-11. 9-11 happened. We didn't really have these conversations. Boom. That was weaponized in 2010. Now all of that nonsense that was manufactured is in the ecosystem. Republican presidential candidates ran with it as talking points. Fast forward to 2016, Donald Trump. Fast forward to now, right? So that pain is not like a forgotten pain. It is a connected pain going back to 9-11. And we thought, if anything, ADL, being the ADL, should have known better. Should have done better. I remember when that happened in 2010, it was like a knife in the back and the knife in the heart. I'm just giving a perspective, a Muslim perspective. You guys who's listening right now, just so you know why Yehuda's like, why didn't everyone celebrate that? And so for many Muslims, they're like, too little, too late, performative. Of course, now you do it. We're skeptical. I'm glad he did it. They can do so much more. There's also this angle, and it goes back to what you were saying. And this is something interesting, which I would love to revisit with you, is... Jews are realizing that they're no longer part of the multicultural progressive agenda. 
they're being isolated from this multicultural Avengers that is moving forward in solidarity, whether it's BLM, LGBTQ rights, Muslims, Palestine, and these institutions are antiquated and they're trying their best to still stay relevant. And this was a low-hanging fruit by Jonathan to just try to get in there still. There's also that understanding and that tension. Perhaps everything I've just said is correct at the same time. I know, having spent time with you, having spent time with Shalom Hartman, having spent time with Jews, I know the tensions that exist within Jewish communities. I think I'm lucky to be, I guess, an outsider insider. And by the way, guys, they mimic the tensions that (laughs) exist within Muslim communities. The performance, the funding, the hardliners, the liberals, the conversations you have in public, the conversations you have in private, the dance that you always have to do, Yehuda, not being called a sellout, being authentic, using your equity, not using your equity. And so I think it is a very important step. And I hope Jonathan and ADL keep pushing in that direction. I think there's an opening there. Hi, my name is Justice Baird. One of the hats I wear as Senior Vice President at the Hartman Institute is managing editor of our new journal called Sources. Instead of hot takes, Sources features long-form essays. Issue number two is out now, and it will inspire you. You'll read about the future of liberal Zionism, synagogues revitalizing American democracy, and making disagreement purposeful. Significant ideas beautifully expressed, all at sourcesjournal.org. With all the heaviness of this particular anniversary, marking 20 years of 9-11, it turns out that there's a second major anniversary of relevance to the Jewish community, its story, questions of vulnerability that we're also marking around this time, which is the Durban Conference that took place in Durban, South Africa, in August and September of 2001. Obviously, got moved out of the news cycle by 9-11, but the conference itself was enormously significant in terms of signaling a shift in the discourse around anti-Zionism, anti-Israelism, and possibly anti-Semitism. We're recording on Friday, September 10th, 2021. This morning, actually, Ron Campius, the bureau chief for Jewish Telegraphic Agency, published a piece at JTA naming that not only is it 20-year anniversary since 9-11, it's also the 20-year anniversary just about for the Durban Conference, a UN conference ostensibly to combat racism, which took an incredible turn towards becoming basically an international anti-Semitic event. I had honestly never connected the dots The Durban Conference and 9-11 took place basically a week apart from one another. Ron had spoke to eight or nine people. We'll link the story in the show notes. It's worth reading the perspectives elicited from a whole bunch of people who were there, including Stacey Burdett, who was at the time at the ADL and has been a guest on our show, Erwin Kotler, who was a representative from Canada and later went on to become a Canadian justice minister, an anonymous Jewish organizational executive who couldn't be identified by name, really worthwhile set of reflections. And we thought today it would be interesting to kind of talk about these two events, 20 years since Durban, what it signals, and what the relationship is or or maybe isn't between these two anniversaries. So Ron, first of all, thanks for, for coming on the show and thanks for your article. Sure, thank you. So take us back. I don't know if you acknowledge this in the story, if you were at Durban or if you were covering it at the time, but take us back a little bit because I think that many of our listeners will obviously know the 9-11 story much more than Durban, but maybe paint the picture a little bit about what the Durban conference was and what it was supposed to be and what happened, and then we can get into some of the anecdotes that that were really powerful that, that you told about in your story. 
Yeah, I wasn't at Durban. I knew people who were at Durban. I knew them in real time, and I also interviewed them or met them like after. Uh, I was working for the Associated Press, and a colleague, Dina Kraft, was also working for the AP in South Africa, and she's a close friend, and she was just sending me real time, like, anxiety-filled messages about how, how awful it was. What, what had happened is that uh, there were sequences of, of conferences starting in the 1970s having to do with equity at the United Nations. There was a, a women's conference. There were a couple of women's conferences. There was the uh, famous conference uh, in, in China, I think, in 1996, where uh, Hillary Clinton spoke out for women's rights. And, uh, and these were rolling along. And there was also, at the same time, a successful effort to roll back a lot of the anti-Zionism that had uh, infected the UN since the 70s. Most notably, I think, 1991 or 1992, the organized Jewish community working with John Bolton, who was then a, uh, an undersecretary at the State Department, and, and others got the General Assembly to, to repudiate its uh, 1975 Zionism and racism resolution. So there was just this this sense, I think, at the time that in the Jewish organizational world, at least, that there was a recognition that anti-Semitism was as toxic as a uh, a lot of other forms of um, racism, and that uh, there were at least some forms of anti-Zionism that were anti-Semitic that were that were a part of that, and so that's that's what, how they felt going into the conference. You know, on the, on the opposite side, you had um, you know what we now see as the harbingers to September 11th. There was the uh, 1996, I think, attack in. Um, Saudi Arabia on a U.S. Air Force base. There was the attack on USS Cole. It was around the same period, but in 1998, I was thinking of the, the Al-Qaeda attacks on the, the embassies in uh, Nairobi and in, uh, in Tanzania. And so there was, there was this, this threat from um, this radical Islamist group that was you know, prone to get headlines when it did something major, but then receded and people weren't paying attention to it. So you had this completely coincidental, obviously, coming together in September of... Um, 2001, the anti-racism conference and the attacks. I don't know that I had fully understood the the role that Ahmadinejad and the Iranians played in in reshaping the agenda of that conference. Can you go into a little bit of detail on that? Because it was new to me in the story. Honestly, I, I know Durban as, and I think probably a lot of people in the Jewish community know Durban as like a word, right? like this thing happens. But you actually describe it as a kind of takeover by the Iranians of the agenda of this anti-racism conference. And you actually, you, you, you connect it to an earlier iteration of the conference or a regional version of the conference that happened earlier. How does, I mean, but I'm also just kind of, this is a naive way of asking, how does it happen that an international anti-racism conference, for those of us who are not convinced all the time that everything in the world is conspiratorially anti-Israel, how does it kind of happen politically that this conference effectively gets taken over and becomes as bad as it was? Well, you know, it's just a... Uh you know, a coincidence of, of just bad actions and actors. I think, first of all, so this was a little bit before, uh, a few years before Ahmadinejad was elected, but he, he was identified with the 2009 second Durban conference. He came there and kind of dominated there. But by that time, most of the Western world had already written off Durban. So that didn't get as much attention. But what happened, uh, as far as the Iranians go, is that... Um, Every region had a conference beforehand, starting in late 2000. And the last then, so there was one in Latin America, there was one in Europe. And then um, the last such conference was in Tehran. And that was going to be the Asian conference. And the Iranians didn't want to let anybody uh, in that they didn't, they didn't want to let Israelis in. They didn't want to let Jewish organizations in. They didn't even want to let 
and they were joined in, I think, with Pakistan and some other countries. And they didn't want to let Australia and New Zealand in. And so that's, you know, which is interesting because they're usually grouped in with Asia because they're too small to have their own grouping. They don't want to let them in because they, they wanted to shape the conference to be, a, you know, anti-Israel, anti-Semitic. And so what would happen, you know, if you've ever, you of all people, of course, you've been deep inside the Jewish organizational world. You send people to sit out these conferences to go through the sort of boring, grueling, hard work of sitting around tables and working out resolutions. They say things, you can't go that far, you can't say that. And then eventually you get like a kind of consensus. But the Iranians um, effectively blocked that from happening by keeping all those people out of Tehran. And so you have this complete, this document that included phrases like apartheid and committing genocide uh, that showed up in the ultimate document that came out of the uh, the Durban uh, NGO conference, because Durban was divided into two components, an NGO conference first and then a governmental conference afterwards. And part of the problem there was also, in terms of the other factor, was Mary Robinson was a UN Human Rights Commissioner. She really had ambitions of becoming the UN's first woman secretary general. And um, the Jewish organization said, you know, we can't get into Tehran, they're being obtuse. Move it to another city, and she refused. She said no. She wanted to get it into Tehran. She wanted to, I guess, bring in the Iranians into the thing, and maybe also she wanted to gain credibility as she as she sought the secretary generalship. And she said, "But I'll make sure they get you in." So what they did is they delayed, delayed, delayed permission until the last planes had left Paris and New York. So yes, they had permission to get in, but it was virtually impossible for the participants to get in. And so you had these, you know, Iran effectively shaping this. The other factor was the Second Intifada and uh, the images that were coming out of the Second Intifada. And to the degree that the Iranians, you know, with already having shaped this toxic document coming out of the Asian sector, they were able to tap into uh, worldwide anger at the Second Intifada. Particularly, there were uh, there was in, just after the Second Intifada started, there was the death of a 12-year-old, Mohammed Dura, who was caught in crossfire between the Palestinians and the Israelis. It's never really been fully determined which bullets killed him. It's it's almost beside the point. I mean, it was in crossfire and it was, uh, and it was awful. And it's just a horrible, horrible, you know, few minutes of video of, of a child dying. And so there was that anger. There was a kind of, um, within South Africa, so South, South Africa is the host and the NGOs in South Africa tended to have a sympathy in any case toward the Palestinians. There was an NGO umbrella organization that organized a, uh, a trip to the West Bank for a lot of the local NGOs, and that further radicalized them. And of course, being, being the host country, they were um, they were influential, and uh, just all came together. And you you know you had this conflagration in Durban. It's not crazy that a similar conference could take place in 2021 around the time of a significant outbreak of violence between Israel and Hamas would also be coterminous with a whole bunch of protests, as you described, taking place uh, in South Africa, which you kind of carefully delineate as pro-Palestinian protests. But many of the uh, people you interviewed described them as pro-Palestinian protests with a decidedly anti-Semitic bent. So that you're not really, it's not merely a kind of kind of coincidence of this event taking place around the time of the Second Intifada. There's also a, a shift in tone, in volume and in uh, there's something ominous and threatening about that. You want to unpack that a little bit? Cause, cause you did, you know, you said like anti-Israel and anti-Semitic. And of course, anytime somebody puts those two things together, you know, everybody's going to start asking, well, what's the line between anti-Israel and anti-Semitic? But almost everybody who's there describes it as no, no, it, it's anti-Israel, but it's also anti-Semitic. So maybe play that a little bit. 
you know, without having been there, but having talked to the people uh, there, I think it's just that the Iranian brand of anti-Israelism or anti-Zionism is anti-Semitic. It's unabashedly anti-Semitic. It's Holocaust denying. We've seen it. The current uh, Ayatollah Khamenei interchanges on Twitter, Jews and Zionists, Jews and Zionists. He doesn't care. It's, a, it's, a, it's all an evil entity. And that just came across. You know, Jewish organizations might be having an event just as Jews, and they would be surrounded by people who would be screaming at them. If they tried to get up and speak on any issue, they would be shouted down. People would say that, you know, you are like Hitler. And there was a, a person who turned out to be affiliated with Al-Qaeda, of all things. He was getting money from the bin Laden family, uh, a Muslim radical in South Africa. And he printed up these flyers, which turned, you know, which people who were there told me were ubiquitous. They would appear on the back of cars. And um, it was a picture of Hitler. And it, what if I had won? And the good would be that there'd be no Israel. That's one of the good things that would be one. It was like, it was this bizarre attempt at humor because the bad is that there would be no new Volkswagen Beetle. I'm not sure why, but there it was in the uh, in the flyer. And that was just, you know, that became an emblem for at least the Jewish participants, an emblem of the opposition that they were that they were getting. So it was, it was definitely anti-Semitic in tenor. I think the Friday of the uh, of the NGO conference, so maybe the fifth day, um, you had this massive demonstration of 20,000 people, and they were wearing T-shirts saying apartheid Israel, as in, you know, play on apartheid Israel, apartheid Israel. And uh, and that was funded apparently by the local NGO umbrella, the, um, the unions who went into the townships and handed out these T-shirts and got these people um, bussed in. And so then, you know, you had that, that manifestation of anti-Semitism that one can define by singling out Israel. I mean, you're talking about a conference that's addressing every type of racism. You're talking about a conference that going in, a lot of the people had hoped that um, minorities like the Roma and the Dalit in India that had not been adequately dealt with in the NGO community in terms of the racism they suffered, that they would be dealt with. And the, the one massive demonstration that happens targets Israel. And so there's that, that element as well. When it comes to the actual government conference, the U.S. representative was Tom Lantos, who was a Holocaust survivor, a member of Congress. And if he is being attacked, and he ultimately led a walkout, if I'm not mistaken, um, if he's being attacked, it's pretty clear we've crossed the line from tacit support for Israel, uh, you know, to to something else that's taken on uh, a different quality. By the way, you know, I, I heard this recently, and I, I feel like it's underreported, so maybe somebody should take it up. But during the 2021 uh, Israel-Hamas conflict, a great deal of, I think something, it's only 15% of the most violent and anti-Semitic memes that were circulating on social media are actually coming out of Iran. This feels like an underreported piece of what is oftentimes imagined as kind of the domestic production of outrage against Israel um, for its actions is actually being designed and controlled by foreign governments. And, and that feels like there's there's DNA of that in what you're describing as being part of what what went wrong at Durban. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Iran uh, promotes these ideas. It has forever. It has its uh, occasional, I don't think it's annual, but it's occasional conference on cartoons about the Holocaust, for instance. Uh, it has Holocaust deniers. It has anti-Semites on press TV, its official television channel. And, and this is plugged into a uh, an infrastructure that's already quite adept at interfering in elections. You had, uh, you, you know, now there's now evidence that... Um, Iran is peddling uh, memes right now in terms of uh, stoking dissent within the United States related to the uh, the whole COVID issue. So yeah, there there's a lot of this. I, I'm sure obviously there is sincere pro-Palestinianism. 
why wouldn't there be? You know, there's every group is going to have its natural sympathizers. And then you have this kind of um, deliberate manipulative uh, actions by governments and by outside actors. And you just have maybe like a handful of people with the, on the one side, sincerely genuine pro-Palestinian outlooks, who can recognize that there's an effort to manipulate them and who try and push back against them. But the you know, I think human nature is, you know, once you see one guy's on your side on a political issue, you don't ask a lot of questions. It certainly manifested itself in uh, in terms of criticism of Israel uh, over the years, where unfortunately you get people embracing or not wanting to deny or not making a big effort to uh, push back against the anti-Semitism with their own ranks. I mean, you saw it in, in Britain during the whole Corbyn era, the Labour Party. So let's talk about two pieces of the legacy. So in your in your piece, a number of the people you spoke to essentially point to Durbin as the trigger of the shift on anti-Israel discourse. So some of the language around BDS, around delegitimization of Israel, um, a lot of that emerges in the Jewish community essentially as a direct response to Durbin, that Durbin is a trigger event. So I, I'm curious for you, how do you see that story playing out? How should we look back and watch the nature of the Jewish communal response and even the state of Israel's response to Durban. Um, and, and then we'll come to the 9-11 question as well. Well, I think that, you know, there was momentum towards integration into the uh, into the whole United Nations infrastructure in terms of uh, fighting racism. And then um, there was just this sort of sudden realization, this big, huge splash of cold water in the Jewish organizational world at Durban that it isn't working. And so you had two outlooks that emerged from that. And one was that we haven't explained anti-Semitism well enough to our NGO partners. Because there wasn't a lot of the hurt that came out of the Jewish community. And Tom Lantos's piece that he wrote for a Tufts University um, foreign policy publication that became very influential, the piece that he wrote, had to do with not simply like, you know, the Iran-backed manufactured anti-Semitism there, but the fact that the other NGOs that, you know, that, that Jews had helped start, like Human Rights Watch, that the Jews had been, you know, working with, they said nothing. And in fact, you know, I didn't go too deeply into this, but the, the NGO's reaction at the time was there was a lot that was really good that was coming out of this conference. Why do we always have to obsess about the Jewish thing? And of course, can you imagine saying that to, let's say, the blacks who suffered racism at a conference? Why are we always talking about the black? Nobody would say that, but they, for some reason, they felt that they could get away with saying that on the Jewish thing. And there were others uh, who, re who resented Lantos's blanket kind of thing, but certainly Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, the groups didn't stand up for them. So there was, there was that one reaction I described. We have to engage with these people. And there was the other one, which was like, let's just write them off. You know, these people are not, they're not honest brokers. They're not good partners. And it's up to them to reform. Until they reform, we will pursue human rights issues um, separately from them. And that, I think that, you know, that defines a lot of the Jewish communal reaction now to anti-Semitism from, from the left. Uh, you know, anti-Semitism from the right is, of course, a whole different thing. But so, like, and when Ilhan Omar, a congresswoman from Minnesota, says something that can be interpreted as anti-Semitism, saying that pro-Israel advocacy is all about the Benjamins, do you engage? Or do you just say, get her out, run a primary opponent against her, and try and make him win? And so you, in the Jewish community here in the States, you've seen both approaches and those the, 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 that difference in approach and the argument and the tensions that ensue from those differences were defined uh, came out of Durban I think that's really interesting I mean I one other 
detour we could take, which we won't do today, but just to flag it as a kind of an interesting question. The whole question of fighting Israel's delegitimization has been a domestic question for Israel in terms of its priorities and what sorts of government infrastructure it sets up to deal with it. A very big part of the Netanyahu, um, Netanyahu administration over the past 20 years was making the delegitimization of Israel a centerpiece of his own leadership, partly because his own vision of his own leadership is I'm the great protector and they're out to get us. And Iran is the primary specter in that. And so there was a ministry essentially devoted to combating BDS, which has basically quietly been dismantled, you know, in the Bennett takeover. And, and part of that is a question of, do you actually think you're going to defeat this um, through these types of political measures? Or do you, you know, do you say I can't defeat it? I'm just going to pursue my own destiny or, and, and the third educational option is Israel just has to make a better case within the international community about how how what it does may not be desirable to the international community, but won't be classified as apartheid. Um, let's let's do the 9-11 story, though, because, again, I was kind of my I was like, oh, really? That was like a week before. So what's fascinating to me is. Obviously, the there is a coherent consistency between these two stories for a very particular worldview, the worldview that emerged post 9-11 of basically the, the civilizational divide between America and Israel on one side, and the Muslim world broadly construed on the other, even though, of course, Iran, Iraq, and Al-Qaeda are no friends to one another. But it does seem to be that, like, you know, a week after the Durban conference, the entire attention of the foreign policy establishment moves from what might have been Iran to Afghanistan and Iraq. So maybe I'd love to get your perspective on what do we learn from the, the juxtaposition of these two events? What do they, they share in common? And in what ways were they simply coincidentally around the same time? I think yeah, it's it's they were they were coincidental. Obviously, Iran obviously was working, you know, had no relationship with Al Qaeda, and they were antipathetic to Al Qaeda. But that, that's in the tactical realm, in the sort of overall ideological realm. Certainly, a a rejection of the West and a, a sort of a, an extreme anti-Semitism, something they did have in common, that was coming up on both sides, accelerated by the establishment of the State of Israel and uh, by the infection within the Muslim world of a kind of Western anti-Semitism that had rose up in the decades before. So there, there's that. I think, I think that the, um, I think what you, you pinned it down in the sense that what the, that we really had in common was the, was the reaction. Um, when you have this kind of extreme manifestation of hatred, obviously it's, it's, it was deadly in September 11th in, in ways that Americans had never experienced before. In the American context, I think what was interesting, if you, if you look at what happened in Durban is that at first, uh, and people forget this, in the George W. Bush administration, there was an effort to actually engage. I mean, you can even see the Iraq war and its hopes for bringing democracy to the region as, as you know, I'm, I'm, people will complain about this but because of the devastation wrought by the Iraq war. But it was a way to, to actually engage with the Muslim world, if you, especially if you look at the, the worldview of one of its architects, Paul Wolfowitz, who's deeply involved in, in Muslim uh, Western engagement. And that dissipated. That dissipated. As the West, Americans became a lot more insular. And so you have this um, uh, this coincidence cross-party, bipartisan, despite the fact that we're extremely polarized in other ways. The, the thing that Joe Biden and Donald Trump had in common was retreat from this, this kind of engagement. Uh, whether it's, um, I mean, I guess in terms of the diplomatic engagement, Biden certainly would be more, I think, more proactive than than Trump was, but in terms of uh, military engagement, anything that involves American troops on the ground, 
there, uh, there has been a retreat. And, um, and so you, and you have the same thing to a degree, certainly in, in Israel, in the Jewish organizational world. I think in a way in Israel, it's kind of, um, there's been a move in the other direction recently. If you look at the Abraham Accords and that, you know, the credit goes to Netanyahu for that in, in, in as much as he really was behind the setting up the strategic affairs ministry and the pushback against BDS, there has been a, an openness to engagement with the, uh, with the Arab world. But I, but I think overall, the common factor in both cases is like, geez, this is really bad. It's a lot worse than we imagined. We should cut ourselves off from this. We should build walls to defend ourselves from this phenomenon. I mean, I guess, you know, in terms of literally building walls, remember a lot of the, uh, if you look on the right wing and you look at the, what's going on in the Mexican border, a lot of the impetus for that was the supposed threat from Muslim radicals who were going to come in over through Mexico, even though that wasn't necessarily based in reality. But that's that's part of the bigger picture. As I was reading what you were writing, as we've been talking, it strikes me that when you saw even five, uh, more than five years ago during the Obama administration, the emergence on, in the Democratic Party of an eagerness, not just a willingness, but an eagerness to negotiate with Iran and bring about at least a, a, a slow down their nuclear aspirations, not going to end them. Um, I kind of wondered whether, had Durban taken place, and I know alternate history is nonsense, but it, had Durban taken place and 9-11 hadn't, it might have been more obvious of the specter of Iran's anti-American, anti-Semitic aspirations. And it seems possible to me that 10 to 15 years of effectively fruitless battles in Iraq on the basis of bad intelligence and a kind of downhill war in Afghanistan, basically, essentially losing the war on one end disincentivizes the desire to actually be at war with another. Does that make sense to you? Because I, I was having a hard time during the lead up to the Iran deal with even sections of the pro-Israel left, the Zionist left, who seemed like unabashedly supportive of the Iran nuclear deal, even though it was so at odds with with most of the pro-Israel world and the state of Israel. But it kind of seems to make sense that like, okay, well, that strategy didn't work vis-a-vis Iraq and Afghanistan. What else is available to us? I think yeah, I think you're right. I think there's a very practical line, a very you know substantive line, not just ideological or in terms of psychological or, or thinking. The, the the Bush administration neglected Iran. There was uh, an overture from Iran in 2003 because they actually feared the Bush administration because it was going in Iraq that was blown. You know, they didn't they didn't want to get in. They they set up this weird system where they allowed the uh, three European nations, the E3, Germany, Britain, and France, to negotiate on. Uh, their behalf in terms of trying to uh, denuclearize Iran. And of course, that's broken telephone, didn't work. There are pro-Israel figures, uh, particularly at APA, at the time who will tell you we're trying to tell the Bush administration, come in and help us uh, combat this. Within the Obama administration, perhaps there was an eagerness to engage Iran. But there was also like uh, an attitude, if you look more on the Obama side, on the White House side of, you know, what are we going to do? We have to stop Iran from getting nuclear. Clinton sort of had some good ideas about doing it in the 90s and then pushed them aside because of the belief that the uh, president of Iran at the, at the time was actually a moderate. George Bush might have had uh, an inclination to do so, but he was actually preoccupied with Iraq. And then you had the, in 2006, you had actually came into effect in 2010 uh, that were pushed by the Obama administration and Republicans and Democrats in Congress as a means of leveraging Iran into the Iran deal. 
Ileana Rostlettinen proposed them in 2006. She had backing for them, but the Bush administration sort of gutted them because they didn't want to alienate others in the Middle East and in the rest of the world by imposing sanctions just as they were just as they were trying to rally those countries to back the surge in Iraq. So you absolutely have this, uh, you know, if, if, if Durban had happened and September 11th had not happened, I think I don't think Durban would have been the determining factor, but it certainly would have been an element in the West sort of coming to terms with the fact that Iran was toxic and uh, that it had very real intentions to uh, acquire a nuclear weapon. And there probably would have been more efforts towards stemming that. I mean, like I said, like Ross Letton had proposed her sanctions absent the September the 11th, absent the Iraq war in 2006. I think it would, you know, I think it would have been a no-brainer. Yes, we're going to sanction Iran uh, until we're sure that they're not uh, moving towards a nuclear weapon. The last thing in the haunting lines in your in your article is uh, attributed to Erwin Kotler, but he's actually quoting someone else. But that 9-11 was Kristallnacht, but, uh, but Durban was Mein Kampf. I mean, maybe just as a last question, what do you, what do you think is going to be the lasting, enduring, like actionable memory of, um, of where Durban's going to live in, in Jewish memory or Jewish imagination? Where do you see the future of that memory? I think that uh, that there's an acknowledgement, whatever you are, that there's an irreducible anti-Semitism out there. It's just there's a nugget of it that'll never go away. You know, I think that's actually, despite the levels of disagreement that have arisen between the right and the left and within the Jewish communal world, within the Jewish community, and we're focused more on the disagreement often, I think that that's, that's the agreement. So when I was talking before about the two different approaches, post-Durban, you know, cut these people off or engage with them, the engage with them size is talking about human rights watch and Amnesty International, even Ilan Omar. There's a there's an effort to engage with Ilan Omar, but there's also a recognition that there are actors who are irreducibly anti-Semitic, that they're not going to go away. And the dispute is, you know, maybe once in the nineties for a brief period there was a thought that they would become that you know, nobody ever thought they would absolutely go away, but there was a thought that maybe they'd become relevant. They're always going to be relevant. There's always going to be a toxicity there. And the, the question is, how do you contain it? How do you combat it? How do you mitigate it? I think that that is a legacy of Durban within the Jewish communal world from right to left, maybe not to the far left within the Jewish communal world, but absolutely, you know, to the uh, to the J Street left. Let's let's call it for sure. I think there's that that recognition. Uh, you saw it. In an exchange on Twitter between Talia Levin, who has uh, written about neo-Nazis and white supremacists, and Brianna Jo Gray, who was, that, was, I think, a spokeswoman for one of Bernie Sanders' campaigns. And uh, for some reason, the conversation devolved into the whole threat of Nazis. And it was about de-radicalization, but that's almost beside the point, because the way that Brianna Jo Gray came back at her was like, I'm African-American. And I, I face a greater threat from Nazis than you, which is a ridiculous thing to say to a Jewish person. And what was interesting, I think, was the, was Talia's reaction and, and the reaction of her supporters. And they're all on the left. They're all on the, you know, within the Jewish spectrum, they're all on the, maybe the far left. But they, they understood it was there. They knew it was there. They weren't surprised. They weren't taken back by it. And I think, you know, even if those people weren't necessarily aware of Durban in real time, the realization that came down from Durban from their ideological antecedents that this is a very real phenomenon on the left, help prepare them for this kind of occasion where somebody who's on the left says, oh, Jews are privileged, Jews are white, and you get to the sort of uh, reductive ad absurdum 
thing of saying that Jews don't necessarily feel any threat from Nazis, per se, which is, of course, that's just one example. To the degree there's a legacy of Durban, there is that realization across, across the Jewish political spectrum. Well, thank you so much for listening to our show this week, and special thanks to my guests, Wajahad Ali and Ron Campius. Identity Crisis is a product of the Shalom Hartman Institute. It was produced this week by David C. Kalman and edited by Alex Dillon, with assistance from Miri Miller and Shalhevin Schwartz, and music provided by SoCalled. Transcripts of our show are now available on our website, typically a week after an episode airs. To find them and to learn more about the Shalom Hartman Institute, visit us online, shalomhartman.org. We'd love to know what you think about the show. You can rate and review us on iTunes to help more people find the show. And you can write to us with questions, comments, and opinions at identitycrisis.shellapartment.org. You can subscribe to our show wherever podcasts are available. See you next week, and thanks for listening.